0: I have a small, funny story to tell you. You may or may not our new r- uniform. I was really hoping to start using the new uniform as of the first of the Lord of the Rings movies, but it wasn't here yet. And I was really crunched for time uh, for reasons that are actually kind of complicated. But long story short, I had about a grand total of seven days to go through six ruminations, which is insane. <laughs> and I didn't have all of those days to a lot for that so I've been basically up from about 5 in the morning till about 11 at night working on these ruminations for the Lord of the Rings series so if I yawn a bit or if I'm tired <laughs> and you'll notice I haven't really had time to properly shave that's why I've really been trying to to push these out and hopefully do so properly but my point is you know, I'm not trying to, to get sympathy or anything. I'm just explaining why I was kinda rushed I could not delay these so, funny story, I finish the Return of the King recording, and I do my, and I walk away, and I'm like, oh, and I try to unwind, I, I take like a five minute break of just stretching and trying to get my brain going again so I could start working on this one. There's a knock at the door, and I go, and it's my new frickin' shirt! 20, 20 minutes, not even 20 minutes, like, probably closer to 12 minutes later, just, hey, here's your new uniform, great. So I hope you like it. Uh, we might be changing the blazer around a bit, but this is intended to be the rumination standard, henceforth. I'll have a different setup for the other stuff, the stuff that is not ruminations, and but is still features. And then I have a third outfit for when I stream, and that in, is going to be the standard from now on. I hope you like it. <clears throat> so, <laughs> now that I've t- talked about the stuff that only matters to people who already know me, and have watched my stuff before, hi to everyone who doesn't. And to everyone who, this is basically your first time perceiving me, I am the Lore Runner. And I like to do ruminations and discuss things. And I just realized I'm still on like my eighth page of my scroll bag. Don't have quite as many notes as most of the Lord of the Rings films. In fact, it's only three pages for, uh, An Unexpected Journey. I want to talk a little bit behind the scenes stuff. I didn't actually have time to go through all the behind the scenes stuff. It's an insane amount. Uh, there's like nine hours just on just on the Blu-rays to, to go through with regards to behind the scenes stuff and that's not counting everything else that I tend to do as far as my you know sifting through behind information. And I do miss stuff on occasion even when I do a full in-depth look at it so I mean <laughs> but I already kind of talked about this in the Fellowship of the Ring one. What I really want to talk about is something, I, I want to kind of hit this right at the beginning here. I like the Hobbit movies. Now <laughs> Whether that's an unpopular opinion or not depends on who you ask, but it's hard for me to look out at the internet as a whole, uh especially when these films were still coming out, and not see people bash them for how terrible they were and how pathetic they were and how horrible they were and how bust, blah 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 blah. A lot of negativity. A lot of negativity was flung at these films. And I find that to be incredibly unfair, in addition to just plain something I don't actually agree with. I do like these films. In fact, I would go so far as to say I love them. As in, they're in my top 100 list. I'm taking a pause here, because if that's the kind of thing that's going to make you not want to watch the rest of my ruminations on the Hobbit trilogy then, you know, I'm giving you the chance to stop the video. If it isn't, well, I'm going to say something else kind of unpopular. (laughs) Might as well get this all out up front, right? One of the things that everyone in the known universe has commented on, to the point where I'm actually aggravated now when I hear about it, whether it's true or not, is oh, the films are too long, they're too long. They took a book and stretched it to, oh my god, three movies out of a book and 56 pages or whatever it is, out into this book. And I've heard so many variations on that over the years, over and over and over, to the point where I I got the impression for a while there that it was the only thing anyone had any capacity to say about The Hobbit trilogy was the length and nothing else, just the length. Oh my god, it's so super long. (sighs) I'm a little sick of hearing that. I anticipate I will see comments on these videos talking about, oh my god, they took a short story and made it three films. I cannot be the only person in the world who is not bothered by the length of these films. I can't be. That being said, as much as the, that type, type of comment irritates the hell out of me, having done a full you know analysis mode on replay of the first film, I can say with some certainty now that there is one striking difference between The Hobbit, at least this film, not sure of the second two now, and the original trilogy, and that is that there are a few scenes of padding. There's not actually that many, not as many as I remembered. Uh, maybe I'm thinking of the other two films, I'm not sure. But they're, for the most part, every scene serves some kind of purpose, whether it be with regards to enjoyment, or establishing the characters, or establishing the setting, or, or moving forward the plot, or panoramic shots of awesome. You know, some something was done with almost every scene. And it's funny because at least one of the scenes that comes to mind immediately that I personally consider to be padding was actually cut. From the theatrical release and was only on the extended edition so i will give that i also want to talk about a couple other things behind the scenes first of all one thing i've noticed in the massive criticism of the hobbit trilogy that again was just everywhere was that people tend to forget how much people were pushing for a hobbit trilogy Literally before Return of the King came out, people were like, we need to have a Hobbit film. And after Return of the King came out and just destroyed everything in the box office and swept the uh, the Oscars and, and was critically acclaimed and financially acclaimed and was one of the biggest blockbusters of that particular era in filming... After that happened, people were like, yeah, Hobbit movie, let's do it! And there were, there were petitions, and there were groups, and it wasn't just from the fans, too. This is very important to keep in mind. Because a lot of people say, oh, there's a lot of push for blah, blah, blah. But what they mean is there's a lot of fans pushing for blah, blah, blah. And while that can have an effect, it doesn't... <sighs> the harsh reality of life when it comes to video gaming or television or books or movies is that that doesn't matter nearly as much compared to if the people in charge of doing things financially are pushing for something and if the people actually creating things the developers or the producers are pushing for something but with the hobbit we had fans the money people and the develop, excuse me, the producers, all three groups of people involved in this were all pushing for The Hobbit. And there was a really big drive for it. And Peter Jackson was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. He was eventually convinced to, to assist, uh, with the writing and with the producing and to just kind of take a step back and let Del Toro actually direct. Now, quick aside. I actually have a lot of respect for Del Toro. I don't like his directing style that much, as weird as that probably sounds. But I do have a lot of respect for the man as a creator. And he's done some really good stuff over the years. And he's got a lot of, for lack of a better term, artistic integrity. I know that sounds like a weird buzz phrase, but I mean it. He's the kind of guy who wants to put his all into a work and doesn't really want to do it just because it's another job. And I and I respect that. And I like that. So, uh and the man certainly does care about what he does, too. He shows a real passion for, for the creative work, you know. So I like that. So he was kind of brought on... And they were in a really, really weird situation because they had, I I forget the exact time period of time, it was a huge period of time of pre-production work. Except it was pre-production work with no green light and no rights to the movies. And that was a very strange situation. And so a lot of people were trying to do everything they could and actually spending money. They had a budget that they were burning through trying to get, you know... Prop design and set design and layout and possible shots and some of the, the script possibilities put together. And Del Toro was actually on uh, on fee. He was being paid to show up and be like, okay, let's go ahead and work on this. But there was no green light. Now, from everything I've read, I'm not 100%. I can't put 100% stamp on this, but from everything I've read, they would have been green light immediately. If not for the fact that there were rights issues. And the rights issues were bad. Really bad. And the rights issues went back to like the freaking 60s. And well, anybody who knows my show at all knows that I champion against the very concept of copy wrong all the time. This is a definitive example of copy wrong. What was happening with the rights issues to the Hobbit film. And it was stalling everything. And in my blunt opinion, the sing- if we were to pick out the, the single thing that went wrong with the construction of the Hobbit trilogy and and like parcel out okay this is responsible for you know, like 5% of what went wrong and this is responsible for like 13%. The single biggest percent would fall into the copy wrong problem of the rights issues which took forever to even out and stalled production horribly and made it so that the, the initial rush of Hobbit film kind of died down. They lost Del Toro. He didn't want to go. By all accounts, he was actually pissed. Or no, I shouldn't say pissed. He was upset. He was just like, I, I don't have a choice. I gotta move on. I gotta, I gotta do my thing. And I can't remember. I think he went on to Pacific Rim uh, either immediately or shortly thereafter. He had his own stuff to do. And it's like, yeah. And so they were kind of chopped off at the knees and they couldn't hire people they couldn't try to to cast and and try to start getting people for acting and and get people slotted into the slots and they didn't actually have a director for some time as well it actually took some time for peter jackson to be convinced to finally say okay fine i'll direct it because he didn't want to um at least initially. Uh, Peter Jackson himself has said that once he got back into the shoes, it was something he, he wanted. It was something he liked. Being a part of this once in a lifetime opportunity a second time, I believe, is a more or less direct quote. But all of this was a huge issue. The movie was almost not made. The movie, excuse me, the Hobbit trilogy was almost not made at all because of all this crap that happened. And then they finally so- settled the rights issues. And then the money problem comes in, because remember, they've been burning money for over a year at this point. I think it was actually three years. I'm not sure of the exact time. Again, forgive me. But for quite some time, they had been burning money on pre-production on a film that wasn't greenlit. So all of that kind of counted against them. And <laughs> because of that, the money people said, we're giving you a little bit of a tighter deadline than we otherwise would. Because the Lord of the Rings trilogy had a fairly large chunk of time. Basically, they could set their own schedule. That was one of the things Jackson pushed for. I want to set my own schedule for pre-production and then starting principal photography. This movie, with the trilogy, they were given a very harsh deadline of five months. Now, I'm not sure if I'm emphasizing that enough. How little time that is to get prepped from vaguely working on things to get ready to getting ready to actually start filming the film. That is insane. And all of this happened because of the, the rights issues I mentioned. So, so I cannot in any way deny that the Hobbit trilogy has a lesser quality than the original trilogy. I can't. It is my opinion the original trilogy is among, if not the best films ever made. And I mean that sincerely. But and it doesn't mean I don't like the Hobbit trilogy. It's just that it is noticeably lower in quality. And I have just kind of, all this discussion is to give you one of my reasonings for one of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reason, why that is. My second big theory on why that is is actually pretty simple, too. My second big theory is that they were pulling off of The Hobbit. Hear me out. Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, the books, were an epic tale, fairly classical in style, um, as much as there's a lot of, of influence from Norse and whatnot, there's, there's a lot of elements of a classic Greek epic being written in the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I mean epic in the the, the, the demonstrative sense, the, this, the, the adjective sense as opposed to the general sense. Nowadays we say something's epic, yeah, but I mean more literally, you know, or literarily if you prefer. The Hobbit was a kid's book. And I don't mean to say that it was bad. I'm not trying to say The Hobbit was crap or it wasn't imaginative or it wasn't interesting. But the difference between the two novels, I should say the, the one short story and the three novels, is stark. And I think that's the other big reason. They had to invent a lot and they were trying to tie into the original trilogy. Effectively, firmly ast- the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy was already very separate from the books. I've talked about that. But the Hobbit trilogy firmly established that the movie canon is basically different from the book canon and should be considered as such. And because a lot of the the Hobbit trilogy stuff was trying to lead into and build up to and otherwise establish things that would come into fruition in the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. So they had less to work with, and they had less to work with, both in-character and out. Not a very uh, enviable situation. I'd relate it to Dragon Age Two, except uh, that it, that's going to sound like an insult to most people. Mm-hmm. <sighs> um, there was uh, 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 three more quick notes before I get to the movie itself. I don't. Again, I'm not going to talk too much about the behind-the-scenes stuff here. Uh, I, I'll talk about the 3D filming thing later because it's kind of relevant for a scene there's a there's one thing i don't like about all three films but especially this one and then there's two things i absolutely love and i want to talk about them here because they're kind of out of character stuff the first is the humor i think there was one joke throughout the course of an unexpected journey that actually made me laugh i forget what it is right now but it was an, a joke that actually made me go <laughs> Okay, all the other attempts at humor felt completely flat for me. It felt too broad, which is usually a term when it comes to movie making that refers to not that funny so that it can apply to more categories of funny. In other words, it's supposed to just get a chuckle out of you rather than, ha ha, ha," you know, something like that. So I never really found the humor funny. And they seem to hit the, ha ha, these dwarves are gross kind of thing just a little bit too much in my opinion. One thing they did right was Richard Armitage. And I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Because I actually didn't hear anybody freaking say it. They just said Richard all the time. So he actually did a, a, a fantastic job. Practically carries uh, the second and third films. If I'm, if I'm being blunt. Uh, at, in his role as Thorin. He, he really nails it. And he manages to get across... St- a lot of nuance, and a lot of layers to the character that are helpful to make Thorin an interesting and and, and fully fleshed-out character. And I've heard a lot of praise for his portrayal in general, and I think it's very valid. And the other character, uh, excuse me, actor I really want to praise is my, Martin Freeman. Now, I'm a bit of a fan of Martin Freeman in general. Not a huge fan, just a bit of a fan. But he absolutely nails Bilbo. If I... i i I, i'm not gonna do this but i could just take like the film just this first one and chop out just like a couple of seconds of every time martin freeman nails bilbo baggins just there and there and there and there and there and there and there so i'm gonna try to do my best not to gush about his performance but he is phenomenal and as much as i like frodo and Elijah Wood did a perfectly good job of all of the things that Frodo was, Bilbo's the Hobbit, as far as I'm concerned. Which is funny, since he's actually not the Hobbit. That would actually probably be Pippin, if anybody. But what I mean is, Bilbo has a wonderful everyman feel to him. Uh, He he actually kind of nails it in a way that even Sam never actually uh, managed. It's, it's It's a unique flavor of that everyman approach to things. And... I think the thing that really differentiates uh, Martin Freeman's performance from everyone else's in the original trilogy is his humility. He comes across as uniquely hesitant and humble, and also, I, I hesitate to use the word shy, but he comes across as someone who... is eternally trying to make things the way he wants them, but is not like in a, oh, this must be this way. It would be really nice if, if this would be this way. please. There's, there's a sort of strange, perturbed politeness about him. And I've seen Martin Freeman do this actually kind of performance before. It's no wonder they picked him to play Bilbo. He really, really, really does a good job of it. So let's talk about the film. Uh First of all, Erebor. I just have one word about Erebor written on my notes, and it's literally the word, wow. Holy crap. No, not World of Warcraft. Just, wow. Oh, my God. The, I... I want to give so much praise to the designers of the ideas and the concepts and the sets and the backgrounds and the props and everything that went into that initial sequence. I, I talked back in the original trilogy about the concept of you know the details in the background. There's stuff we literally see for about three to four seconds in the in the intro parts to this film that is amazingly detailed. I even bothered to pause every now and again just to be like, oh my god, and just to soak it in. And I encourage you to as well. It is a phenomenal job. And to be blunt, nowadays, uh, as a result of this, when I picture Dwarven Kingdom, I have something to refer to because they did an amazing job on it. And of course, they brought back a lot of the same people who worked on the original trilogy, including the two big artists I mentioned back all the way back then. So it makes sense that they would nail it so well. So, I have a quick question for you. Even though it's only a background object in this film, I'm just going to ab- raise the question briefly. What do you think the Arkenstone is? It's never really explained, not in the films and not in the book. What is the Arkenstone? Now, there's a theory that's been going around that it's one of the Silmarils, which would actually make a huge amount of sense given its impact and. A lot of what it does it is implied although never stated outright that the Arkenstone is what finally called forth Smaug because I mean the huge pile of of gold probably didn't help but the Arkenstone being the thing that made him go okay you know the beacon if you will and we know that especially within the film verse of Lord of the Rings the sort of spiritual ebb and flow of energy in the world is a thing And so the Arkenstone kind of acting as a beacon to evil creatures, kind of how the ring was for Frodo, kind of makes a degree of sense. Especially for someone as sensitive to that as Smaug. I also have uh, another theory about the Arkenstone, regardless of it being a Silmaril. It could just be a very pretty gem. On the one hand, I kind of don't like that because a lot of things that happen in all three films kind of lead you to think that the Arkenstone is a big deal, like an actual magical artifact kind of a big deal. However, at the same time, it would be very appropriately fitting if it was just a very pretty gem, if that's all that it was. Because the point then would be that it's not the gem that started all this, it's not the gem being magical to influence anyone. It's not the gem that called Smaug. It's not the gem that inflicted. Uh. Thror? Thror, Throin, and then Thorin. Or is it Throin, Thor, and. Th- I don't. The grandfather, the king. <laughs> and his son, but mostly the king. In other words, that the gem was just. It happened to be something that was mined out when the dragon sickness was getting particularly bad. And then, as a result of that. It happened to be the piece of stray that breaks. It's the piece of straw that breaks the camel's back. And I kind of like that idea, especially lit- uh, from a literary perspective. Because what's different about that last piece of straw that's different from any of the other pieces of straw on that camel's back? Well, the answer is nothing. It just happens to be the one that finally breaks the limit. And I kind of like the idea that the Arkinstone stone was never significant, it was just that final piece that pushed him over the edge, and basically led the kingdom into ruin. That also, to be blunt, kind of follows the overall trend of dwarves in the Lord of the Rings setting in general, especially in the movies, where the dwarves tend to go, hoo hoo once they get to a certain point. Uh, forgive me, but there is a wonderful quest in Lord of the Rings Online, where we actually have a flashback to when they unearthed Durin's Bane the the actual specific moment when they unearthed durin's bane while searching for mithril right and the king at the time durin uh is talking and he actually angrily says how dare anyone say my kingdom is running dry there's always more mithril we just need to dig deeper we just need to dig further and oh forgive me forgive me it just ah it upsets me so when people spread such lies about my kingdom and it makes it quite clear that it was literally it wasn't actually greed that actually drove him to go further down, but it was pride. And I kind of like that dynamic and that presentation, because Lord knows dwarfs tend to be a little bit on the prideful side. But anyways, so then we have brief shots of Smaug, and by brief I mean we don't actually see the guy at all. Apparently he and Godzilla are bunk buddies, I don't know, but anyways... I gotta say, I liked what they did with Smaug. In all three movies, but especially here. As much as it would have been cool to see him. To be blunt, I like the fact that they saved that for the second film. And I like how they show the level of devastation he pulls across. It does something that The Lord of the Rings has actually, and actually most fiction, has never done for me. It made a dragon terrifying. I can't actually remember the last, well yes I can. I can remember the last time I found a dragon terrifying before this. Uh, And before that, I can't remember the last time I found a dragon terrifying. Usually dragons are a lot of things. You know, big and magical and interesting and fun and hordes and, you know, colors. Gotta, Gotta check their colors, see if they're evil or not. But... I have never, with, with the two exceptions, Smaug being one of them, I've never really been terrified of a dragon. And I like how they made Smaug out to be a nightmare. To be this horrible, overwhelming force of destruction. The kind of thing that could literally take on an army by himself and win. And I liked that. Which brings me to a question. Do you think the elves gathered under Thranduil, Thra- Thranduil, Thranduil, I'm probably saying his name wrong still, and the dwarves there under Thorum. do you think they could have actually taken and defeated Smaug? I don't, but he probably could have helped their people, and the fact that he turned away was pretty unpleasant. But I like the fact that as he's considering it, there's a long pause as if he's debating with himself before finally he turns away in shame. And, and the tone of his face and the way he turns makes it clear that this is not a, it's more of a, like, like an unfortunate realization kind of a thing. I mention that because it's the first time we get a little bit of shading to his character, which will continue in the future films, uh, making him a little bit more of a of a dynamic character than a evil, stupid king kind of a character. He's not a Denethor, in other words. So, I like the continuity they bring into the beginning about how you know the basically the first few shots of Bilbo riding there are set right before Fellowship of the Ring. And I mean right before it. We literally see Frodo run off to go meet Gandalf in the card. That's how right before. And I like that. And it's a nice way to kind of bring in the original trilogy. And it was a nice way to kind of lead in. A a nice framing device for the upcoming thing. This brings me to a point. I have noticed several uh, reviewers other than myself who looked at this uh, said that the film gets good at about the 44 minute mark. That is when they head off on the adventure, by the way. Uh, It pretty much leads directly into when they first encounter the trolls. Well, that's a lie. It actually is the campfire scene when they are talking about uh, the orc attack on Moria some time ago. I cannot possibly disagree with that sentence more. I'd mean no disrespect to my fellow people who look at and analyze films, but... I found the establishment at the beginning to be critical and crucial to the overall development of the quest. A lot of people say it's boring, a lot of people have said it's, it's, it's disinteresting, and, and it's just nothing happens. Which is funny, by the way, because I've actually heard the exact same complaints levied at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring. Also known as my favorite part of Fellowship of the Ring. Now, maybe I am weird. I will acknowledge that. Lord knows I have slightly different tastes than most people. I do have a black and silver one ring on my finger, after all. But I like a slow-boil story. I like when you take the time to establish something. I like how we establish a lot of Bilbo's character. I like how we have just a little bit of a snippet of each of the 13 dwarves so we can help to differentiate them from each other. We may not know their names. I couldn't tell you their names right now. But you can tell which one is which and a little bit of their personality by sight because of that initial establishment. They do a lot to establish Thorin. They do a lot to establish Gandalf. And of course, and this is the most important part, it's lighthearted and fun and peaceful, and that is an absolute direct contrast to the rest of the three films. I mean, the rest of this film and the next two films are not peaceful. They are not happy. They are not lighthearted. Attempts at humor aside, things are bad pretty much the moment they leave the Shire. This kind of thing was necessary, I think, rather than just getting right to the good stuff. And if I might just rant for just a second, I dislike that attitude in general. I actually have talked many times about one of the first lessons I try to teach uh, aspiring writers is, don't just rush to the good stuff. I know you want to get to it. Trust me, I understand. I understand that desire to just be like come on i know this great scene's going to happen why don't i just get to it and the desire to just rush to it as quickly as possible don't do that take your time build it up properly it will have so much more impact if you build up to it it will mean so much more if you build up to it and to be blunt if all of your story is the good stuff it's not going to be nearly as interesting without any level of contrast. One of the other things I like about this film in particular, and this kind of carries through all three, but it's especially in this film, is Gandalf is not quite sure of himself. He actually uh, talks around it and avoids the truth many times, uh, and it, it actually doesn't come to a head, and he doesn't finally get completely honest about it until he's talking to Galadriel much later, which I'll talk about later. But the whole film especially this one, he's hesitant, he's uncertain. He still has that vague sort of power of knowing, of sight, if you will, as I've referred to it, but he's not really refined in its usage, he doesn't know what it means, and he keeps doing things like, I'm not sure if I should do this, I'm not sure if I should do that. He actually comes across as more green, as in, unexperienced. Now that makes a degree of sense, really. Uh, even though Gandalf is obviously quite experienced even at this point in time. But within just the sliver of the films, we get the impression that Gandalf hasn't actually done that much as far as great, massive deeds up till this point in time. And this is kind of the beginning of Gandalf starting to step up and become one of the major players rather than one of the moderate players. Note that in the meeting of him, Elrond, Galadriel, and Saruman, he is basically the, uh, the the lowest man there, the, you know, the, the shortest chair, lowest man on the totem pole. He is the one who is taking that seat compared to those other leaders. Now, I make this point because that is very much against the books. Obviously, Mithrandir has plenty of stuff he's done before now, and arguably even before that. But within the context of the films, it's made clear that Gandalf is still a little bit raw, a little bit untested. And I kind of like that, because it goes right alongside with what Bilbo's going through. It means that this is Gandalf's journey in addition to Bilbo's journey, and to be blunt, I think the story is stronger for that. <sighs> um, I like the fact that even young Bilbo doesn't really fit in with the other hobbits. I've mentioned this, actually, over in the Fellowship of the Ring stuff, how Bilbo doesn't fit with the other hobbits. I like it here because this is before his big adventure, before his adventure changes him. He still doesn't fit in. He's got a big house, no wife, no kids, no friends of any, any note. People know him by sight, but of course they do. Everyone else is talking and laughing and, and entering in the market, and he's just kind of moving through it. He still doesn't quite fit in. I like that because, to me, that means that Bilbo not only never fit in... Well, okay, let me, let me rephrase how I'm saying this. The implication has often been that the reason Bilbo doesn't quite fit with other hobbits is because of the fact that he went off on this grand adventure, which hobbits just don't do. I like instead the implication that is given here in this film that Bilbo was always different. It's just that the adventure brought it out in him, allowed it to to grow and to be nurtured. And thus, create crafting him into the Bilbo we would eventually know—a crotchety old guy who's like nonsense. I'm not on here. No, no guests. <laughs> so, dwarves are great in this film. Uh, they did a lot of behind-the-scenes work on establishing uh, body motion on how you should act, on what kind of volumes of your tone you should say. Basically, they actually did a whole prep series of this is the culture of dwarves, and therefore this is how you should act. And I like that they went to that lengths for it, and it shows. They really do act what I would consider to be very dwarven. And it brings up the wonderful and interesting paradox of dwarves. They are simultaneously very rude and incredibly polite because amongst dwarves there's a weird sense of camaraderie but at the same time they're really big on and and and, and they're really big on just doing whatever and being loud and boisterous and wrecking the place but at the same time they're also really big on manners my my sister and i actually had a lengthy discussion about dwarves and how well of a how good of a job this film did in particular when we were driving home from the theater of establishing dwarven culture and how much she thinks she would get along very well with the Dwarves. And I agree, personally. I'm not sure I would. That would be a little more difficult for me. I like things to be a little more clean. <laughs> and yet, notice that after they basically tear through his place, they also bother to clean it up on their way out. Because to not do so would be unacceptable. It would be against... It, it would basically, basically be um, rude. But not rude by our standards. Rude by their standards. You accepted me into your home, and therefore I will do what I can to leave it properly when I leave. And that kind of undercurrent of Dwarven cultures throughout the whole of the three works. It's it's a great aspect and helps to to flesh out uh, the setting of the work quite a bit. The table scene is wonderful, I want to say that. Uh, The scene where they're all laughing and talking around the table. They actually did that scene in several different cuts. Each time they actually had real food out there like actual food that had been cooked and pressed and was real. They could actually eat it right there on the table, and they were given a lot of leeway, and so there was a lot of improv on the actors as they were laughing and talking and doing all sorts of stuff, and several of the actors talk about, you know, I he did this, so I'm like, oh what am I supposed to do with this? Well, I guess I'll do this, you know, and they just kind of acted off of each other, and it turned out great. Um <laughs> The... uh I do feel very bad for poor Sir Ian McKellen. See, Ian McKellen was not in that room. He was in another room on another stage about you know, several dozen feet away, which was basically just green screen the room. He was in a massive green screen area, just himself. Now, he had an earpiece in, so he could hear the others, so they could do audio cues back and forth. And they had earpieces in, so they could hear him. But he was acting to an empty room. Now, I say poor Ian McKellen. He is a very theatrical actor. Um, to explain what I mean by that, certain actors... I used to think this is a dying out concept, but it's still going, so that's actually good to know. Several actors uh, either start their careers in or are primarily theatrical actors. They act in theater. They act in plays and musicals, and they kind of learn the acting craft there and then they they make the transition to or occasionally act in films or video games or television as well Ian McKellen uh, had some really serious issues because he was acting to an empty room and he was having trouble coping with that he's used to having another person to act against to act with this is in direct contrast to what was happening with Martin Freeman and Alan, Alan uh, Andy circus I'll talk more about that later but the relevant point is that both of them were acting against each other. It doesn't matter that Andy Serkis is in a ridiculous suit and crawling around like an idiot with a camera on his face. What matters is that it was two people acting right there to each other. They, they could bounce their performances off of each other. Ian McKellen had none of that. He had a green screen and an earpiece. And they had to do it, and this is actually funny in hindsight, because of 3D filming. Right about the time the Hobbit movies were starting to come out, uh, the whole 3D film thing was starting to become big. Whether it's still big or not depends on who you ask, but it was the latest big thing in theaters to be like, you know, how IMAX used to be. Now it's, oh, everything needs to be in 3D, and you get to wear these gr- glasses, and it's 3D! And the reasoning was that 3D tickets sell more. And it was really unfortunate because there are many movies where they basically just did a 3D pass, and like one or two scenes have 3D elements in them, and therefore they could charge a significantly larger amount of money for the tickets and make more money off of it. Now, I'm not saying all movies were like that. Some movies were made deliberately with 3D in mind, and therefore actually properly utilized the medium. Now, I, of course, don't care for 3D. I've made that opinion very clear, so I just thought of it as a gimmick and frankly don't want to do that. But I bring it up here because that is the primary reason for this horrible situation Ian McKellen was in. Because a 3D film, a 3D camera, I should be more clear, can tell the distance between things. So if they pull the distance trick, it would be like, well, he's right there. And, you, and so in the 3D film, you'd see Ian McKellen way up here, and it would just completely throw it. So they had to try something else. And they invented a new technique, which they actually did several proofs of concept of to prove that you could literally hand something to someone in a room 30 feet that way on a green screen. It was a very well done thing. But it was horrible for the actor. He actually had a, a little bit of a breakdown on set, which I feel very bad for them. And I know exactly what that feels like. I've done that before. Um, and felt very embarrassed about it too, I might add. And I like the fact that everyone went out of their way to embrace him after that. That, you know, um, Peter Jackson went, was like, here, look, you did a good job. And a lot of the set people were like, we're going we're gonna to set up his, his tent nice and comfy and make him feel at home, and we're going to give him this food, and we're going to give him a fruit basket. And we, need, we, we want him to know that he is appreciated, that he is wanted on this set. And they did a good job of actually you know, reconciling with that him and helping to bolster him. And Peter Jackson actually came out and gave him a freaking hug and was like, look, here. <laughs> um, I just mentioned that obviously they you know the cynical mind might say they had to do that there would be no movies without ian mckellen but i like to think that it wasn't just cynicism that these people actually did care about each other because this was mostly the same team that worked on the original trilogy and i'm sorry you make three movies together you get a little bit of a bond going there and i like the idea that they were genuinely concerned about someone that they cared about and to be blunt i also think that's one of the reasons why all six movies are good and indeed great, because there's a lot of effort of care. A lot of passion was put into these films on every level. Actors and directors and cinematographers and editors and CGI people and the the modeling crew and the the, the grips and the the set design. Everything. Which brings me to my next point. Thorin. So Thorin... Thorin is established, uh, his characterization is established quite quickly. Note that he is the only character who is actively rude, like actually rude. He does not greet, uh, uh, he does not greet Bilbo properly, he is not nice to him. He basically stomps on in and says, this place sucks, which is very non-Dwarven, actually. And I personally think was trying to not just establish him, but to establish kind of how bad he's gotten. That he has essentially forgotten his manners, which, as I think I've established, is kind of a big deal for a dwarf. And the idea that he's, well, he's portrayed almost as an antagonist, which I find fantastic because one of the next things that happens with regards to Thorin is he establishes that he's not really that interested in armies or gold. He's interested in people with loyalty. And that establishes one of the early themes about Thorin, loyalty. And how much he values it. Uh, I also think they did. A, I mentioned, you know, the, everyone's care put into it. Thorin literally looks different from all the other dwarves. It's hard to specifically point to just one thing and say, well, he's different because of this. Because he's not that taller, and he's not that much like he's not less stocky. He's just as stocky as the others. He moves just like the others. But there's lots of little details in his performance, in his outfit in in his blocking that all make him stand out just a little bit from all the other dwarves. So he's he's clearly distinguished as a result of that. And, of course, he has the most characterization. Uh, Him, Gandalf, and Bilbo probably have the most characterization of any of the characters throughout the course of this trilogy. I like how Gandalf convinces Bilbo through... First of all, through being honest. He does flat out say, you know, you might not come back from this, and... You will not be the same if you do. But I also like how he tries to convince him by insisting that there's more to life. It's not quite survival versus living, as has been brought up so many times in Star Trek. It's more like existence versus living. I personally have always had a three-tier system. Most people have a two-tier system, survival, living. But for me, I think existence sits in the middle there. Survival is the bottom of the barrel. Survival is, you know, for, to use the Star Trek example, continuing on as a Borg drone. You are surviving because you're still breathing, you are still technically alive. Therefore, survival. It is it is as bat- far down as it gets basically, and it's quite unpleasant speaking from experience. Living is obvious. Everyone can define living because everyone does define living. What living is is defined by you. You're the only one who can decide what living is for you existence therefore is right in the middle existence is when things are fine they're just ordinary they're normal and that may be a good or a bad thing that's up to you but the idea is that there's no big crisis you you know you have food you have comfort you have a day-to-day routine you're not super satisfied you're not reaching for some big ambition you're not trying to ascribe to some great thing you're just existing but it's not bad. that would be surviving. That would be further down, right? And so the argument here is what sh- what does Bilbo actually want? Does he want to exist? Because that is what he has in existence? or does he want to try and live? And that's what ends up convincing him. <sighs> here's where I mentioned the thing about the forty four minute part. There's the flashback that I referenced. The flashback establishes several things about Thorn as well. It's another reason it's useful in addition to being, you know, a battle sequence. Uh, he is very stubborn and he's very much a warrior. One of the things they do rather well, though, he is very loyal. I mean, very loyal. That's established all over the place. But he's not the same as a human king one of the biggest themes throughout all three of the original films was what it means to be a leader a human king you know that that whole undercurrent that was there in many different characters it was there in boromir faramir aragorn uh, denethor theoden it was a constant undercurrent to, to so many different aspects of the original trilogy here thorin is a dwarven king And a dwarven king is someone who is a great warrior, who can accomplish great deeds, and is unwilling to bend. Basically, a dwarven king is the kind of person who will do what is necessary, whether it's the right thing to do or not. Note that they go out of their way to emphasize how the battle Thorin won was a Pyrrhic victory. And how that battle cost them so dearly, they've never recovered from it. And yet... In, in within less than a few sentences of that statement, it is also mentioned that Thorin is the person who they are now loyal to as a result of this victory, because he did it. He got results. I like that contrast, because it, it, it helps to differentiate dwarves and helps to establish dwarven culture separate from the culture of men, and I, and I really much like that. Especially since dwarves do not have the same problem. Men do. They aren't. They do not need to be united. They don't need a great leader. They need another of their own kind, basically, and yet one that is capable of actually accomplishing the things and seeing it through. It is also funny that Bilbo is the one who asks about a, uh, a Zog. Azog. Azog? Azog. Um, I mentioned that. That's not the first and that's not the last time that Bilbo will be the one to actually pick up on things that other people don't. He is a clever individual, and that is part of his character, after all. And that's part of the undercurrent theme, one of the two major undercurrent themes of this work. That being the value of things that aren't just strength, but I'll get more into that later. There's a great scene where Gandalf is like, so there's the two blue wizards. You know, I can't remember their name. I admit that made me chuckle a bit. (laughs) Call me weird. Go ahead, it's okay. I like Radagast in this film, in these films. He's about exactly what I would picture Radagast as, actually, with a little bit more silly involved in him, because he does come across as a little ridiculous. And I do have to say, I don't just like Radagast because he was the Doctor. Although, if you think of Radagast and the Doctor as the same person, a lot of things start to make sense. Anyways, I like him. He is a great example of the Flash Gordon effect. Which i haven't really talked about a particularly large amount on my show it's when something is silly or cheesy or ridiculous and fully embraces it like the flash gordon movie which was silly and ridiculous and cheesy but it was never tongue-in-cheek it was never winking at the audience it was never haha look at this or never it was never self-parody it was embraced they took it and they ran with it i'll use a more modern example in final fantasy 15 there's a quest chain Or you go get some ingredients to help a cup of noodles. You know, a little thing of ramen. And that quest chain is awesome. Because it fully it, it it's full Flash Gordon effect. It fully embraces the ridiculousness as these characters are like, Man, I'm just glad to have this great cup of noodles at the end of the day. And the it's the embracing of it that helps to to, to make it more to make it palatable, basically. The presentation allows me to accept this otherwise ridiculous thing. I do have a weird question though. Why do you think the spiders retreated after Radagast healed the hedgehog? I have two theories on that. One is that they were no longer being summoned, that literally the dark magic that was poisoning the hedgehog was summoning the spiders, and two, that they weren't sure they could take Radagast in a fight, which is funny, because I'm pretty sure they could. So then there's the trolls. I mentioned padding. A little bit of the troll scenes is a little bit padding-y, in my opinion. I will admit that comes down to opinion, Padding, of course, is kind of an opinion call, an opinion judgment call in general because you know we can well establish if a scene in a book or a movie or a television show or a game uh, establishes or moves forward any of the five aspects of story. That's pretty easy, right? You know, does, does this help the characters? Does this help the plot the setting, the, uh, the character growth or the themes of the work? There's a, f- a sixth ineffable quality, which is basically just fun entertainment value which can be humor which can be just yeah or awesome or whatever but that's always going to be dependent on the individual because there is no overall category for just fun there's no definition for it so whether or not you enjoy the trolls scene is up to you for me the only part about it I really liked was uh, a couple of little tidbits first of all uh, Thorin is the one who actually drops his weapon first when, when, they, when they've when they got Bilbo, and Bilbo just, you can see on Bilbo's face, he understands just how bad this is. Thorin's the one who drops his weapon first, and everyone else follows suit. Then, when he has the plan to try and bargain for time, and to convince them, you know, hang on, it's, it's you need to do this instead, Thorin's the one who picks up on it, and tries to, like, guys, come on. And then they're like, oh yeah, we're, we're riddled with parasites. And, uh, I mention that because that is, of course, very Thorin and very Bilbo. We see that even for someone Thorin actively does not like, Bilbo in this case, he is willing without hesitation to drop his weapon to help him, showing that he is a dwarf, even if he doesn't quite act like one. And Bilbo, of course, shows his value as well. Again, one of the, the- one of the undercurrent themes of this work is that just strength isn't always enough. And just strength didn't win that battle. Strength helped win the battle, but cleverness helped as well. And if it wasn't for that cleverness, they probably would have never gotten out of that one. At least not intact. So then they find the gold and they bury it. I, uh, I wonder how the Elvish Blades ended up there. I also find myself wondering, forgive me for nitpicking a little bit, but if they had made the trolls less ridiculous, less cartoonishly silly, and more actually menacing, I wonder how differently that would have gone. I mean, in the movie, not in the, not in the original book, of course. If they had made the trolls just as terrifying as the High or something similar to that, you know, how, how different would the tone be? Because in that case, I wouldn't even ask the question, how did they get the Elven Blades? Because they would have taken them through force. Hmm. So, once again, we have the uh, general idea of uh, balance, for lack of a better term, uh, spiritual balance. The idea that if you introduce darkness, it's actually referred to as darkness in the, in the books. But you know, if you introduce evil. Let's just call it that evil energy evil evil spiritual uh, power over a specific area it literally affects everything on a sort of a vague but consistent level the bad thing you know literally the murkwood being the name the new name of the woods and how foul things grow and there's more diseased and wolves and spiders and all sorts of other horrible things they even mentioned Angoulet actually in the movie I caught that uh terrifying thing that one and I like the uh the fact that Rad- uh, Radagast, for all of his ridiculousness, also thought to bring the Morgul Blade and managed to hold his own against the frickin' Witch King of Agmar, at least for a few seconds, enough to get away. I like. I dislike a lot of the humor they pull with Radagast. Again, it's that kind of cartoony, sort of childish humor. But I like how he's ridiculous, yet still has a positive impact on things. Not just here, but in, in the future as well. And I like that because that's basically the same as what we did in the original trilogy. It's just picture him being a hobbit instead. In other words, you don't have to be. You get it. I don't have to explain this again. Uh, I do love the double joke. He's like, I, I will, I will drag, I will, you know, get the old orcs away from you. And Gandalf says, you, you have these stupid rabbits, that's not going to work. Therefore being the joke, that Radagast is so pathetic with his, his his little rabbit sled, that that is the joke, the fact that he has a rabbit sled. The double joke is the fact that he says, no, I'd like to see them try. And then he frickin' manages it. Which, that made me grin ear to ear. The fact that he and his ridiculous rabbit sled could actually pull that off was actually kind of awesome to me. And again, very hobbit. I admit speaking of which, uh, I admit I like how smaller scale the fellowship is here uh, than the original fellowship. What I mean by that is there's more of them, uh, 14 I think. No, 15 total. And uh right, 15, 13 dwarves, one hobbit, one wizard, I think I'm right about that. Anyways, I like that they're larger group and yet weaker in basically every way. It was actually kind of a complaint of mine, but it does make sense in context that Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli are basically a frickin' death ball, to use a StarCraft term. Here we have Dwalin and Thorin. They're, they're good warriors. Uh, Balin certainly has some skill. And Gandalf can manage a few things. And Keely, I think? I actually wrote down his name. Uh... I swore I wrote down his name. Maybe I didn't... Whatever. The, uh, the young... One of the younger... Not the youngest. One of the younger guys. They all have some skill, but it's some skill. They are nowhere near on the level of the heroes from the original trilogy. And I kind of like that because it makes the whole th- work more down to earth and it means more things are threatening. A simple orc pack on a bunch of wargs would be just kind of, all right, let's take these guys out. Instead, they're fleeing from them. I like that. That's how it, it it helps to emphasize the, the the perspective difference. I want to pause for a moment before we move forward and talk about Azog The more I think about it, the more I can accept him as a character because he does two important functions but I don't actually like him as a character because he's a bond villain. I mean, several villains in The Lord of the Rings and and movies and books and everything ever tend to be stupid. But he is a straight-up, I'm-a-retard, excuse me, Bond villain. He has no frickin' brain. And yet, he is presented as someone who is a massive threat. See, here's the thing. This is why I'm okay with this. Because he is an orc leader. We've seen the kind of leaders that exist amongst men. We've seen the kind of leaders that exist amongst... Well, actually, we, we, we've we kind of seen the kind of leaders that exist amongst elves. We will get a much better picture of that in the second film of this trilogy uh, with Thranduil. We've seen the kind of leaders that exist amongst dwarves, you know, with the whole Thorin thing I mentioned earlier, and wizards with Saruman. But we've never really seen orc leaders with probably the only exception being uh, Gothmog back in Return of the King, and it was a Gosmog. Actually, I remember if it was a Gosmog or Gothmog. Hang on. I just need to go back a few pages, because I was talking about him just the other day. Uh, it is Gothmog. I was right. Anyways, because an orc leader doesn't have to be smart. An orc leader can be some supremely overconfident idiot, just like a Bond villain. It just matters how c- capable he is of basically beating his, his minions and his soldiers into servitude. That's the part that actually matters. And Azog is that in spades. He did l- survive his arm being chopped off, after all. So, that's the first function he serves. He has our insight into what Orcish leadership is like. And it's about exactly what you'd expect from the Orcs. So, that makes sense. And the second thing he portrays, and this is a little bit more relevant later, but I'm going to mention it in brief now is that he is something to help establish Thorin, and is a character for Thorin to play off of, and, and to be in contrasted to. And I say, well, okay, I'll get to that later. So, then the... Uh, so then Thorin swallows his pride, which is actually no small feat for a dwarf. I like that. And he, he accepts going to Rivendell. He accepts going to, you know, allowing Elrond to see the map. There's a great scene when the elves are coming back, and... It's really brief. It's one of those blink and you miss it. But they basically physically grab uh, Bilbo and push him into the middle of their group and then pull their weapons up. It's a nice little touch, that kind of protective thing they've got going on. And it's debatable if it's because they've been working together. Because they haven't really been adventuring that long to really grow a bond yet. I think that's just kind of dwarven. Quick, get the non-combatant into the middle! You know, it just feels a very dwarven thing to do. And then, of course, uh, you know, there's the scene. Elrond is actually noticeably nicer here. Uh, And I mention that because I think that's part of that whole theory I posited in the previous films about how the elves are directly affected by the spiritual balance of Middle-earth. And at this point in time, we know... I mean, it's stated outright, but there's another scene later I'll mention, and I've already mentioned in the previous trilogy. We know that the things are much more balanced on the side of light right now, and therefore are not terribly horrible. So it's possible Elrond is literally in a better mood as a direct consequence of that. Then there's the one scene, I, I took a note of it. I mentioned earlier there's one scene that made me laugh out loud. It's this one. So Elrond says, ah, 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 ah. And they say, what does he want? Does he offer us battle? No, he's offering you food. <laughs> okay, well, in that case, lead on. <laughs> that, that actually made me laugh. So there's a lot of dumb dwarven humor here. Oh, they're crude. Oh, they're naked in the, in the fountain. Bleah. I didn't need to see that. And I don't find it to be particularly interesting. Except I, I do have to contradict myself here, because it does serve one very powerful point notice the fact that the elves and the dwarves here are as close to allies as they're going to get at the moment the elves and the dwarves haven't had a great relationship for a long time but they are basically on the same side here right i bring this up because even when allies the cultural gap between dwarves and elves is huge it is this wonderfully gargantuan chasm between the two peoples and how differently they think and function even on a basic level and even though it comes across as haha dwarves are crude what it's actually showing us is the gap that that exists between these two people and why they have been antagonistic for so long because again even if they were allies they would probably hate each other's company right it also helps to in in sort of a Uh, retroactive kind of a way, helps to add more weight to Legolas and Gimli's friendship back in the original trilogy, that they could overcome that cultural gap. And even then, they only did through months of adventuring together. There's a great, great scene where Bilbo is walking through Rivendell, just soaking it in. No dialogue. Doesn't need to be. Everything that needs to be said is said all over his Martin, Martin Freeman's face. I know I, m- I mentioned I would try not to gush about him too much, but he really does a great job of portraying Bilbo as he's walking through Rivendell. And the offer of him staying there, I think, from Elrond was genuine. And then it cuts to the dwarves in the fountain. <laughs> I like Elrond's real concern, by the way. When Elrond hits Gandalf with the truth. It's not I don't want the dwarves to prosper. It's not screw the dwarves. It's not that gold. No, it's all about that sickness, the dragon sickness. Now, I'm calling it that now. I don't think they call it that until the third movie. But I think it's fair to call it that here. And I'll discuss more much later when that actually comes up. Suffice to say, that's what I'm the term I'm going to use for the mental illness that afflicted his grandfather, his father and will afflict him. Spoiler alert so he mentions the dragon sickness and how that's his major concern it's a nice touch especially since thorin is actually present to overhear that and so is bilbo that'll be very relevant for their uh, character dynamic later but notice how thorin doesn't look like oh that's not true or no he's he's just as worried as elrond is he is just as concerned i'm reminded of or Aragorn, aragorn's problem you know the same weakness flows through my veins kind of a mentality and then Gandalf is like, "Look, you know, I'm not going to deal with this. I don't actually report to you." And notice he has to make that point because, again, he's kind of the, the junior of the group here of the Guardians of Middle Earth. And then we have a convent, uh, or not convent, excuse me, a convocate of basically that's still the wrong word, a convention. There we go, of all of, of basically all the Guardians of Middle Earth. We have Saruman, Galadriel, Elrond, and Gandalf. <laughs> so first of all they do a really good job with that scene the whole scene plays out perfectly it's nice to see christopher lee not playing a bad guy he is still very saruman he's just not a saruman who has begun and has accepted being evil as as, as part of that whole bitterness thing he is just saruman now and it's nice to see galadriel too I also, so I like how they all defer to her. She's basically the senior of the order, effectively. Although Saruman, of course, is technically the senior, but she tends to act as the elder of the group for reasons that I like and we'll get more into later. I also like how Saruman basically looks at the situation and says, this is not a big deal. The dwarven situation, that's a big deal. Because that makes perfect sense from Saruman's mind. He's not concerned with some vague rumors of some whispered fear that might come back. He's concerned about a giant freaking dragon that can destroy cities. Because that is Saruman's mindset. And it's not exactly invalid. It is the other three, all three of them, I feel like pointing out, who put a great deal of weight in the fact that, hang on, this means something. This is a Morgul blade. Probably the Morgul blade of the Witch King. And as Galadriel makes clear, she believes that this is a very serious threat and that there's something that needs to be done about this. It's just, we're not 100% sure what yet. It is an amazing scene, by the way. It really is. Um, it, it, it does two things very well. In the, it, I mean, it does a lot of things very well, but it helps to establish that whole two perspectives thing. And I wrote down some of this. I'm going to be checking my notes a lot as I'm talking for the next couple of sentences here. So first we have Saruman being presented as a natural opposite to Radagast, which makes perfect sense. Saruman is, again, the big, obvious, the great, the powerful, the wise. Radagast is the exact opposite of all of that. But again, that union, that, that, that those two perspectives being kind of the, the, the unified thing. See, Saruman is not unified with Radagast. The two are in opposition to each other, or at least Saruman is but then the very next scene which is a fantastic scene and probably I'd say my second or third favorite scene in this film is just between gandalf and galadriel first of all we see that same contrast between the two of them cuz gandalf is not gandalf the great and powerful here he's a hu- he's a humbled old man they do a lot of great shots you can one of my favorites is where you literally see their hands. She reaches out and holds his hand, and you see his hands are old and gnarled and dirty. There's dirt under his fingertips, and there's there's like some cuts here and there, and he just looks old and worn, and her hands look beatific and perfect, as if they were sculpted. We see both halves there, the great and powerful Galadriel and the down-to-earth and the normal Gandalf. In their own sphere, that's the comparison. And yet, unlike Saruman and Radagast, these two are unified. She reaches out, grabs his hand, and the two of them are of one mind. And thus we see what those two halves can accomplish when actually unified in purpose. And he gives an amazing speech to her. Uh, Forgive me for truncating it, because it was too big to write the whole thing down. But first of all, Gandalf is actually honest with her. I know that sounds weird, but he hasn't been this whole film. And I don't think he is after this point, either. The only person he freely opens up and is completely, 100% honest to is Galadriel. Note he didn't even mention, didn't even mention the Morgul Blade or Radagast until she brought it up, until he admitted it to her and was willing to show her the one he trusts this thing. So he opens up to her and he flat out just lays it all out. He mentions how he's afraid. He mentions how seeing bilbo gives him courage and all these great things but he has this wonderful bit he says that saruman believes that only great power can keep evil at bay and i know this is overt but it's a great speech because it it really just puts those the two the two halves thing on display here he believes it's small things ordinary uh i can't read that word ordinary acts of everyday folk simple acts of kindness and love that he thinks that that is what helps keep the darkness at bay and it's great and it's awesome and again it really helps to emphasize both perspectives there moving on moving on so we have the stone giants i don't have much to say about them i do think they kind of fit the overall concept of the of the films especially the idea that the world itself is alive and moving and blah 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 just taking a little bit literally um and then we have another wonderful shot of the uh, of the dual nature of Thorin. Because notice that when Bilbo falls, Thorin's the first one to go down and be like, Come here! And, and actually is the one to pull him up. And is actually endangered in the act of doing so. But he does so without hesitation. However, the moment they're safe, he starts ranting at him again. Oh, he doesn't belong with us. God! Then Bilbo tries to leave. And in his upset nature, he rants. He, he says, you know, you... you you don't belong anywhere. I like it because the dwarf gentleman, I don't remember his name, actually says, you're one of us. Again, very dwarven. You're one of us. Once you're part of the family unit of a dwarf, you're you are in there. You know, Legolas is part of Gimli, Gimli's family unit. It, it, not literally, not blood, but I mean, he's—you're. once you're into the company, you're in with a dwarf, and I like that. And then he quite earnestly says, I wish you all the luck in the world. And then they fall into a goblin trap. The goblin trap's ridiculous. And I'll be blunt, this is when the film kind of goes down in quality for me. I actually only have this, this one page of notes for the entire rest of the film. Uh, I wanted to talk about this briefly. Uh, I do know that the difference between goblin and orc in the original, in the actual literary works, is nothing that goblin is just the common tongue word of orc i get that okay i've always liked the p- perception that they are actually two different groups and i tend to prefer that interpretation which is the interpretation that's shown here in the film that the goblins are actually a different group a different species entirely than the orcs that have some dealing with the orcs just my personal uh, preference on the matter so they have the trap uh Let's talk about the let me think about this for a moment. Let's talk about Bilbo and Gollum. Now this was actually the first scene filmed for the film, believe it or not, uh, which actually makes a lot of sense in hindsight. For those of you not fully versed in the creation of films, it's very rare that the first scene seen in a fil- first scene perceived in a film is the first one filmed. Usually they do it with regards to logistics or who you can get, which actors win, where, or set design. Especially if you're doing like uh, on-site set, set. You know, sometimes you want to do the on-site stuff at a specific time. Here they specifically did the Gollum and the Bilbo thing first because there was going to be such a hassle and such a difficulty in filming 14 or 15 people at the same time in so many other scenes, they wanted to get going with something small-scale first and really start to wean into it, both from a technical side and from the side of the directors and from the side of the actors. They redid that scene many times. It was actually described by Martin Freeman as basically a little play, because they would do almost one uninterrupted take of the whole scene, and then they, and occasionally they'd ch- stop off, but then they'd reset and they'd do the whole scene again. And it was actually quite good uh, by both Andy Circus and by Martin Freeman's recount. And I've seen a lot of the shots they did of the making of that. And it, it, I agree, it's good. And Martin Freeman himself was like, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do this. But a few times into it, that was no longer Andy Circus with a ridiculous suit on. That was Gollum he was staring at. And he, he got that. He snapped into character. It helps that Andy Circus nails it. I've given a lot of praise to Andy Circus in the past, but he freaking deserves it. The man is a master of his craft, of physical body motion, uh, facial acting. He does it very well. And it's not like he does bad stuff with his voice either. He actually does basically play two characters in this scene. It is a large scene. It's actually chopped up a bit, but I'm going to talk about it in one hole here. Uh... It's, uh, unfortunately, I don't actually have that much to say other than how amazing it is. I do like the idea that the only form of entertainment Gollum has is riddles. If you think about it, riddles don't require anything. You know, a book requires the book and light, actually. You know, a video game requires electricity and the console or the PC and the tools and, and like a desk and a monitor and, you know... The, so many forms of entertainment require certain things. It's one of the reasons so many dice games are so popular, or I should say were so popular in so many areas of life because all they required was dice. Boom, that's it. So with someone who has nothing, riddles make an excellent form of entertainment because they require nothing except for this and this. And honestly, you don't even really need the mouth. Um, I love the dynamic between the three of them between the three characters on the scene. I love how, uh, it, again, it did make me chuckle more than a few times the way that Gollum and Schmeagol would play off of each other. Do note that Schmiegel is in no way a good guy here. It's very clear. I mean, remember, Gollum is the one who asks, what do we get if we win? Schmiegel is the one who answers, oh, we get to eat him. I mention that because... This is not a schmiegel who is anywhere near the road to redemption. This is a schmiegel who is a broken and ruined vessel, which also happens to have Gollum riding, riding along for the ride. The riddles themselves were actually kind of funny. Um, I admit, you know, it's, it's, I, I guessed almost all of them immediately. The one I didn't guess immediately was the teeth one, which I found kind of funny. Um... It's also interesting to me that it takes Gollum quite a while to notice that the ring is gone, because that makes sense when I really think about it. Remember, this is not a Gollum who spends his every waking moment going, Ooh. he's a Gollum who has this thing on him at all times. And occasionally he probably pulls it out and like, ah, oh, that's nice. Kind of like Bilbo used to. Remember, Bilbo didn't spend all his waking hours going, ah, but as we saw in Fellowship of the Ring, when he went to find for it and couldn't find it, he flipped out, just like Gollum does. I also want to point out that the ring probably, this is the moment that Galadriel referred to as the ring abandoning him. And so, yeah, between these things, it's such an ordinary thing for him to have the ring present. And remember, it wasn't even that far away, that it didn't even occur to him that it was gone, until he actually went to pull out the ring Probably to become invisible and then to murder Bilbo and then to eat him. You know, it's weird how many things involve, how many concepts involve eating hobbits in Lord of the Rings. It's actually there's actually a quest. I kid you not, where you can play as the uh, creeps in Lord of the Rings Online. Uh, Don't ask. It's it's an acronym. Uh, Where one of the quests is to collect hobbit feet because hobbit toes are delicious. I'm not kidding. <laughs> so then, of course, he, you know, he, he gets the hell out of Dodge, puts on the ring by accident, figures out what it does. We also get to personally see the pity of Bilbo, how he refuses to kill Gollum. The irony is, obviously, that was the correct choice, because otherwise the fellow, you know, the tril- the original trilogy wouldn't happen. But in, that's only with the power of hindsight. If we ignored that entirely, whether or not he made the right choice becomes a much trickier question. But there's one thing I want to really bring your attention to, because I think it's very helpful in establishing the setting, and it's something so minor that attention is never directly called to it. When anyone puts on the ring, they perceive things as if they are, in, they are perceiving the spirit realm and the spiritual energy affecting the world around them. Okay, This is at least in the films. Not talking about the books or anything. So Bilbo saw this dark, horrible thing with, with wind constantly buffeting about and and you know and almost always the eye of Sauron like like three seconds away. But that makes sense. By the time of Fellowship of the Ring, Sauron's already out and about. The the realm has already had so much more darkness added to it. Just like I mentioned earlier with Mirkwood, when you inflict that kind of negative spiritual energy onto a place, it has an effect on it. But this is several years ago, several decades ago, actually. And so, none of that darkness is there yet. It helps, again, to contrast the original trilogy with the new one. That the, that the very nature of the world is not as dark as it is in the original trilogy. Because when Bilbo enters the spirit realm, it's quiet and peaceful. It's almost soothing, actually. And there's no horrible wind buffeting him. And there's no terrible shadows. And there's no dark eye of of lidless wreathed in flame glaring at him. It's just the spirit realm of that particular era. And helps to reemphasize my point and how much that affects so many different things throughout the course of all six films. That's why I bring so much much attention to it here. Because this is the apex of my whole theory about the spiritual energy thing. Because it is still just a theory. I will admit that. But within the context of the films, I think it was done very deliberately because it all lines up pretty much perfectly. And it helps to explain Elrond, it helps to explain Arwen, it helps to explain Bilbo, it helps to explain Frodo, it helps to explain the general nature of things in so many different places and across so many different people. Uh, The note I actually wrote down about this, just to remind myself, was notice the absence of the darkness poison. Because... That's kind of what I think of it as poisoning the spiritual realm, with the darkness. So then there's the Goblin King. This is the only scene in this film that made me actively go ugh, and is the only scene that I wanted to skip, and therefore is the one true scene I would consider padding. It's this. It's not. It's the scene that was in the extended edition, the one where he does this whole song, and then and then. He's like, bring up the thing so we can torture them. And then it cuts back to Gall and Bilbo. And then later on it cuts to him singing again. The second song works a little bit better. It's shorter, first of all. And it's a little catchier, but also it's it's more to the point of being like, ha, you're screwed. I do like the Goblin King, personally. I do I do actually like his presentation. Good actor, good good visual. He does a lot of things that are very indicative of a Goblin King. In other words, someone who literally cannot function without his servants. Ignoring the fact that he literally uses them as footstools and needs them to be able to stand upright. Then there's a scene where they cut to one of the dwarves having stolen from Rivendell. Now that pissed me off. And I was actually upset about it, and I went and rewatched the scene again just to make sure, and I noticed that it was just the one dwarf who stole from Rivendell. I bring that up because that makes it a lot better. If the dwarves, as a people, had stolen from Rivendell, that throws everything I was talking about dwarven culture completely out the window and makes them all bastards. I'm just going to say that these people took you in and gave you a home and gave you food and gave you safety and literally saved your lives. And you stole their stuff. What the hell? one dwarf making that kind of choice is a little more understandable i mean there's always going to be outliers right there's always going to be people who don't quite fit the norm so that makes it a lot more tolerable and a lot more understandable i still want to punch him even his own dwarves though you notice his own fellow dwarves look at him like what the hell dude so uh so did gandalf teleport in there i wonder I will admit, as much as I think a lot of the verse is consistent, Gandalf's powers are not. He tends to be able to do whatever based on the needs of the scene. It's actually funny. There's a behind-the-scenes thing in uh, Return of the King, I want to say. It's been so long since I actually watched those. Where uh, Ian McKellen asks Peter Jackson, Why doesn't Gandalf just zap all the Nazgul? And Peter Jackson's like, Um, uh... Uh, uh, <laughs> just kind of, you know, because movie, right? Because plot, and I think that is actually the answer, as much as I hate to say that. <sighs> Tolkien himself actually went out of his way to separate Gandalf from the group, because, in his own words, well, in his own terminology, uh, Gandalf being in the group removed a lot of the danger they were in, because Gandalf would just be able to win in so many of the circumstances they were in. So Gandalf had to be removed from the group. Uh, fortunately, in my opinion in the films we'll actually see what Gandalf is up to while he's removed from the group. So then they fight, they fight and 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 this goes on for quite a while, and then they fall cartoonishly far, for for relative for no relative damage. Whatever. Oh, excuse me. So then Thorin has this rant, and. There's a great scene where Martin Freeman shows this look of realization on his face, because Bilbo. Because then he comes out, he says, "No, I'm here, I'm here." Thorin's rant, you know, he misses his hearth, he misses his. He has thought nothing of it. He's not. He's thought of nothing else since he's been with us, you know. Because I love it, because this scene finally explains why Thorin has been such a jerk to Bilbo since he joined the group, not before that, but since he joined the group at least, and also explains the dual nature of Thorin's thing, because Thorin is a very loyal person. He has gone out of his way to save Bilbo more than once, to his own personal peril, no less. But he's still angry at Bilbo, and now we know why. See, the major theme, you know, the undercurrent theme of these of this trilogy is, you know, great deeds, little deeds, and, and the way that they can interact, you know, the, the Gandalf and Galadriel parallel. But the main theme of this film, in particular, is the theme of home. We see so many groups, and there's so many interactions of the showcasings of what home means to different people at different times, and most importantly, of course, for the main heroes. Bilbo has a home; he has a place that he calls home, and he treasures it, as he himself says, "I miss my garden, you know, I miss miss my books." But you have no home. And it is finally driven in both for Thorin and for us just how much of a thing that is for these dwarves to have no place to call their own, that they do not have a home. And I love how Bilbo decides, despite being a small person, despite being weak, to still stand up and say, I'm going to help you because your home was taken from you. And if I, if I can help you get it back, I will i love that thorin doesn't actually get to react to that immediately instead what happens is azog attacks the azog attack is actually kind of blah if i'm being honest the tree scene the fact that the one last tree lasts just long enough despite having the weakest roots i mean whatever (laughs) sorry it's funny that because i'm kind of negative on a lot of the action scenes in the latter act of the film. Even though I'm very positive on all the character scenes. Because the character stuff in the last act is great. But the action scenes just make me go, alright, next, next. <laughs> so, he, so Thorin charges Azog. That is very foolish. And very dwarven. And of course Azog is an idiot too. As we've kind of established. In fact to be blunt in many ways Azog and Thorin kind of parallel each other. And I'm going to talk more about that later. But just to say for right now, they are in many ways different sides of of the coin kind of a situation. Kind of how uh, Denethor and Gothmog had a lot of similarities between them in The Return of the King. I love this, though, because what happens is it's a direct contrast. Thorin does something stupid and foolish for all the wrong reasons. He does it because of foolish anger and pride. He does it because he's a dwarf. Just to be nice about it. I like dwarves, but that is a very dwarven thing to do. And then... (laughs) And then Bilbo does something very foolish and very stupid for all the right reasons. And Bilbo doing it is what encourages the other dwarves to charge in and start fighting. And it gives them enough time for the eagles to show up. But I want to... Before we talk about the eagles, I want to say something really quick. Technically, the first thing that uh, Bilbo killed was a warg. But there was no impact. I mean, he didn't actually kill that warg. He just had his sword out defending and the warg charged into it. Now, you might be like, oh, you're just, you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're getting into semantics. But that's important for when it comes to how much of, a, of that means to the character. There's a difference between accidentally kills, killing someone and deliberately killing someone. So. Bilbo's first deliberate kill is killing an orc to save Thorin. An a, a, a hobbit who's never fought before, let alone killed before, kills an orc warrior to save Thorin. That says a lot. And it's interesting to me, and great from a literary perspective, that his first kill is such an important and powerful moment. And then, of course, the other dwarves charge in, and then the eagles show up. I didn't want to talk about the eagles back in, in the Return of the King, I don't want to talk about them here, but I have to bring this up, because I, along with most Lord of the Rings fans, understands why the Eagles weren't used back in Lord of the Rings. We all know that. I'm not even going to say why, because if you're watching this video, and you've been watching for the last 40 minutes or whatever, you probably know the answer to that, too. It's a lot less clear why the Eagles don't take them any further here. Why they let them off on the rock, you know? I mean, it's a great shot, but I mean, we we could have kept going for like another, I don't know, hour maybe at eagle speed in order to make it there. Bypassed all the way to... No, we're just... Okay, we're done. You could argue this. There are possible explanations. I just bring it up because it's a lot more face palming than the eagles showing up when they're really needed in the final battle, which even in the confines of the movies does make a degree of sense. You hold back your your best weapon until you're ready. You, until you really need it. Until it is the final call. In fact, to use another parallel, Babylon Five does that. Uh, I forget the name of the group. Well, I don't want to spoil because it's in season uh, four. But there's a certain thing that they kind of hold back until season four of Babylon Five, specifically for that exact purpose. Because you don't want to you don't want to play reveal all your cards until you know you really need them. But why the hell do the eagles just take them so far? I mean, there's no explanation even offered. It's just, thanks, bye, whatever. Moving on, moving on. No more eagle talk, ever. (laughs) There's, real quick, there's actually another YouTube series, which is far more popular and better than mine in every way, called How It Should Have Ended. And there's this one thing where he's, uh, I forget the exact thing they're doing the joke on, but Gandalf's like, I have an idea. and It just might work. And then someone shows up, no eagles, but they solve every problem. No! No more eagles! (laughs) So, nice little touch. As the eagles grab the group, and Thorin specifically, and leave, Thorin's oaken shield falls off his arm. He never actually gets it back. It's a subtle little touch, and in fact, I didn't even notice it until my second time watching the film. But I bring it up because it helps to emphasize that this is now the first step in his character arc. Up until now, Thorin has actually had no character arc. He's only had characterization. You know, He has been established, but he hasn't changed. He hasn't moved. Now he is moving forward as he loses his shield, ironically. And he has this wonderful scene, which is my favorite scene in the movie, by the way. Or he's like, yeah, did I not tell you that you were not safe in the wild, that you had no place in us? I have never been more wrong in all my life. And he just embraces him. And the, the, the warmth and the, and the dynamic and the chemistry between the actors is phenomenal. And he really is just, oh my God. And from that moment on, they are friends. In fact, true friends. Pretty much until the end even with some stuff that's going to happen in the third film, of all the people, he remains most loyal henceforth to Bilbo. And that friendship remains until the end. In fact, uh, I'm reminded of a line very, very, very towards the end when someone asks, And who's this Who's this Thorin person? And he says, He was my friend. I love that bond that has now grown there. It, I almost feel like Thorin wanted to care about him this whole time. In, in sort of a protective sort of a way, you know? And just was, was refusing to because he was so bitter. Thorin was so angry at Bilbo for having all those wonderful things he wanted that had been taken from him personally and from all of his people. And so he was, that's, that explains all of his dual nature throughout this film. He was pissed off at Bilbo as much as he wanted to protect Bilbo. And both of those natures were just conflicting with each other constantly until finally he is he, he, he loses his shield. He finally has a point where he's like This this is this is one of my brethren. He is now part of the Dwarven Company. And remember, when you're in a Dwarven company, you're there for keeps. I love that. And thus we end on a shot of Smaug. <laughs> Sorry. That's all I got for today. It was a real treat going back through this one. I'm curious how the next one will go. I suppose we'll find out when we get there. For now, I will see you next time.